Hi, everybody. Um, welcome to this evening's public event, which doubles up as a book launch for my colleague Laura Baer's new book, Navigating Austerity. Um, so we've got a great format tonight, which is that we've got um, four speakers who are going to each briefly talk about questions of austerity and um, are there any alternatives to it. They've got a series of questions they'll each be addressing. Um, I'll briefly read those out. Um, one is, what can be done to reduce the inequality generated by austerity policies in the UK and across the world? And we've got here somebody talking about India, someone talking about Paraguay, someone talking about the UK, and um, finally somebody talking about Italy. So we've got everything here. Um, secondly, how could we undo the financialization of public institutions and communities, which is what many of these people's work deals with? Thirdly, how can we support communities and social movements to build alternative to austerity and financialization? Fourthly, what are some of the utopian alternatives to neoliberalism? And fifthly, how could we get the public interested in these alternatives? And some of you are the public, so you've got to tell us. <laughs> so after each of our speakers has spoken for about 10 minutes, we'll open up to a kind of general conversation uh, from you, but also they can ask each other questions as well. So just to briefly introduce people without talking uh, too much, um, first of all, Laura, who got a PhD in Michigan and has written several books, but her new book, Navigating Austerity, is what we're celebrating here today. She's interested in anthropology of the economy, state, time as well as one of her big topics, and she's been working on issues of time for a long time, so she will be addressing some of that. Um, sorry, I've got all these papers here. Um, secondly, Anna Coot, who's from the New Economics Foundation, and she is the Associate Director of Social Policy there, leading work on developing a new social settlement to meet the challenges of the 21st century, and she'll be telling us more about that. Um, then thirdly, we've got Andrea Mutlerbach, um, sorry, Andrea, right, um, who got her PhD in Chicago and now works at the University of Toronto, and her book, The Moral Neoliberal Welfare and Citizenship in Italy, is well known to some of you, and I've just been reading it myself. I was inspired to do so by this evening's event. Um, but she'll tell us a bit more about what she's doing. And then finally, um, Carly Schuster, or Caroline, um, who's come here all the way from Australia. We only managed to get Andrea here from Dublin, but <laughs> we've got Carly here from Australia. She's at the Australian National University College of Arts and Sciences. She also did a PhD in Chicago, and her book is called Social Collateral Women and Microfinance in Paraguay's Smuggling Economy, but she's working on new stuff now, which she might, well, tell us a bit about. Okay, so over to Laura, um, who's going to start off. And you'll notice that, I think, yes, there is a hashtag here, so if you're in the habit of tweeting, kindly note the hashtag. Um, but don't forget to listen to the talk as well. And there will be book signing at the end. You can either get the book, your book signed, which you will buy outside, or otherwise, at the end, we can also go upstairs to the Seligman Library on the sixth floor where we're serving some drinks, so you can have Laura sign the book up there as well. Okay, Laura, over to you. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, I'm going to be talking about alternatives to austerity from the perspective of a place that's very, very far away from here, which is the Hooghly River in West Bengal, India. And the Hooghly River stretches down, as you can see on this map, from the Ganges right down into the Bay of Bengal. And it's been a vital lifeline for trade for at least 300 years. You can see on the left 
ships in the 1890s in the harbour in Calcutta that had come from the South China Seas and all over the world. And here on the right you can see there are ships, very different kinds of ships, but ships still making this journey now. So I want to take you on a journey to this river that's following in the footsteps of my research here since 2008. This is a place that's very far away from London, but I think it can help us to understand the causes and solutions for austerity in new ways. So what did I discover on the Hooghly when I began my research there in 2008? Well, really, my research exposed the myths of meritocracy and growth that lie behind liberalization policy in India since the 1990s. This was an increasingly productive waterscape, but it was a waterscape where there were increasing amounts of exploitative, dangerous, and volatile work, and even a kind of ruined infrastructure developing. So we had ships coming up the river from these rather spectacular docks in Singapore with their great you know, infrastructure, up uh, across the Indian Ocean and then up the Hooghly River to these docks on the right, these kind of ruined forms of precarious infrastructure. And my research was really looking into why this kind of exploitative, dangerous and volatile economy had developed. And I found out that it was really to do with the new role of the state on the river, in particular the role of the Calcutta Port Trust, which since the 1990s had been trying to cut costs in order to repay debts to the central government in policies that we would now call austerity policies. And these kinds of policies had very paradoxical effects, as I would discover during my research, including ones like this. So the cargo had doubled since the 1990s on the river, and all of the goods that were filling the shopping malls of Calcutta that were signs of globalization for the inhabitants had come up this river. But at the same time, accidents on the river had become almost a daily occurrence because of the lack of government investment in dredging. So some spectacular accidents happened as well, like this one, this at Hoogley Point, when a ship you know, went, veered off course and landed in the bank. There was also an increase in entrepreneurship and public-private partnerships on the river. But these were generating incredibly difficult, informalized, insecure work environments and de-unionized workplaces for people. Like this shipyard, Venture Shipyard, where I did a lot of my field work. And Venture Shipyard was manufacturing ships for the Navy and the port and for Scandinavian clients. Some of these ships are now sailing on the North Sea, not far from here. And they were doing it in incredibly difficult and dangerous conditions with no protections for labor. Other trades had increased, like the silver sand trade, where men would go to the center of the river and stand up to their necks in the water and collect sand from the center of the river that was then used to, uh, for cement to build the new towns of the city of Calcutta. And the port was collecting rents from these trades. At the same time as all of these developments, this growth of informalized work, public sector permanent jobs on the river had been cut by two-thirds. And of course, it was the jobs of the working poor, the skilled workers on the river that were being cut, not managers' jobs. So how did this economy produce increasing inequality? Well, there was increasing precariousness and uncertainty about the future amongst the working poor on the river, about how they would uh, cover times of ill health, how they would educate their children, how, in fact, for young men they would ever afford to get married. 
And this precariousness was increased by the fact that unions had become the brokers of informalized labor on the river. They weren't protecting workers' rights. And there were very few political coalitions emerging, in particular because public sector workers stigmatized and looked down upon private sector workers, even though they were part of the same economy. And this produced very fragmented class identities. Now, this whole economy was described by the working poor on the river as an economy driven by the burning of the stomach or by forms of individual selfishness. So what did the working poor on the river want instead? Well, they wanted greater forms of mutuality, mutuality that they expressed through particularly Hindu ideas. They wanted to be treated with respect like workers treated the ironworking god Vishwakarma on the right of this PowerPoint here, with respect. And they wanted their employers to treat them as, as powerful men as, as Vishwakarma would be treated. Their families and themselves also wanted to have an economy that would make their households thrive with a life force, or in Hindu terms, a shakti. And in fact, what workers were doing was they were applying a social calculus to the economy. They were asking, what kinds of social relations does this economy produce, and are these just or exploitative? So I've taken you on this journey, but now I want to turn to why this economy exists. I'm going to scale up from the Hooghly and link it to sort of a greater global shift and link it to austerity policies uh, that exist also in the UK here since 2008. So why does this economy exist? Well, it exists because of changes in government financing in India and across the world. Government financing used to be a political debt under the control of political institutions, and it's become increasingly a financialized debt that's under the control of financial markets and a source for extreme accumulation at the top of society. And in fact, if you went online, this is a day trading site, you too could be trading in these markets if you wanted. So what were the key changes in government financing? Well, governments no longer printed or borrowed money when they needed it according to the rhythms of politics. Instead, they started to issue government sovereign debt bonds via central banks, and they passed these on to large market maker banks who then traded in these on the primary and secondary markets. Now, this produces several effects. It produces extreme accumulation from the public infrastructure as banks build in, you know, derivative infrastructures on the back of these bonds. It, on the back of these bonds, also, there's been an extension of financialized credit to all of us in order to cover the declining value of our wages. And there have been the growth of increasing speculative bubbles. And one of the biggest effects of this is that the value of government bonds is now in the hands of financial markets and in the hands of ratings agencies like Standard & Poor's and Fitch that rate bonds according to how they're trading in the financial markets. So how did this change happen? How did central banks become, in a sense, casino-like, fueling these sorts of speculation? Um, well, it was introduced by the World Bank and the IMF into the Global South during the 1980s and 1990s, growing out of the Baker and Brady plans. It was extended by the Maastricht Treaty uh, in Europe um, through the 90s. Um, and it was also adopted as best practice 
enthusiastically by some countries, such as the UK and Ireland and India. So what are the effects of these, these changes in government financing? Well, quite simply, economic policy across the world is now oriented to keeping the financial markets happy. And this is partly through deficit reduction. The public sector is hollowed out. The public sector is also financialized. And miniature versions of these sovereign debt bonds are now created between local authorities here in London and commercial organizations. The government becomes dependent on large market maker banks, so they will always bail them out, as we saw in 2008. And it also, government borrowing is driven by volatile, unpredictable market sentiment, which makes it very difficult to predict what, how, how you're going to be able to borrow as a government. And it also creates a, a kind of automatic class alliance between the investment and the political classes, which makes radical economic policy highly unlikely. There won't be redistribution or a definancialization of the public services with this structure in place. So what I'm arguing is actually the policies that we saw of austerity policies of 2008 are just the latest version of this longer global historical process that has moved from the global south into the global north. So now I'm going to turn to the more optimistic part to conclude, which is what might be the alternatives, what might be the utopian alternatives to this kind of structure. Well, I think there are new kinds of technical mechanisms that could be put in place, new structures for government financing that would undo the financialization of the public sector. The most radical of these would be to end the issuing of sovereign debt bonds entirely and for governments to go back to monetizing through which they could create, which is the creation of money by the central banks, through which they could then create national wealth funds, which they could then redistribute to individuals, communities, to the NHS, to the development of forms of green infrastructure, because this would be under the control of political institutions. A less radical solution would be to end the secondary derivatives markets in sovereign debt bonds, which are also the basis for shadow banking, which also creates volatility in the economy. We could develop political bonds which are issued outside of markets and we could create different laws to regulate these. These could be issued for very long periods of time, 30 years, 100 years, to long-term investors. We could perhaps vary interest rates on government sovereign debt bonds and their ratings according to how much the government redistributed. It's an idea. I think we would also need to create central bank elected boards to open up central banks to political processes, to democratic processes, so that they would, be, they would have responsibility for their actions. I think at the most grandiose scale, when I'm having my kind of biggest utopian dreams, we also need new international organizations. We need to forgive all sovereign debts and to, in effect, transform the World Bank and the IMF through that into what I would like to see a kind of international tax collecting and redistribution organization that would also buttress national government's efforts to collect taxes. But most of all, we need a new kind of politics. And this is a politics that would explain the costs of the normal operation of sovereign debt rather than of sovereign debt crisis. And we need to create social movements that ask what the state is for and how to definancialize it. Some possibilities are forms of citizen audit, um, but I think the, the kind of guiding principle 
in this kind of politics should be a social calculus like that proposed by the working poor on the Hoogli River, which is why I've put this last slide up, because I think it expresses their, their values very strongly. And their values were really those of mutuality that led them to ask whether government economic policy was actually creating a flourishing of life or not, or whether it was producing destruction and death. So I've ended with a slide, an optimistic slide, of the flourishing of their lives in spite of their subjection to austerity policies. Thanks very much, Laura. Okay, over to Anna. Anna Coots. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me here. Um, how many people in this room are anthropologists? <laughs> okay, well, not everybody, because I'm not an anthropologist, and I, I, I do feel that we speak a different sort of a language, and we... Um, don't always understand each other, but I'm really pleased to be here to offer you um, some uh, information about the work that we do at the New Economics Foundation that does certainly relate to the challenges that Laura has given us to think differently about uh, austerity. I come from the New Economics Foundation. is a, it's a think tank. We also do practical things on the ground, so we call ourselves a think and do tank. And Uniquely, we insist upon the connections between society, environment, and economy. And our slogan is um, a new economics for people and the planet. So instead of uh, regarding people and natural resources as sort of um, input to an economy, we regard the economy as something that should serve the interests of people and the planet. And that's where we, really what our starting point is. And what uh, we've been working on, among many other things over the last few years, is trying to envisage um, what we call a new social settlement, which starts from our understanding of the post-war settlement, uh, which was um, created in a very different era, and which now is very uh, strongly contested and partly dismantled, and to try to understand what was good about that and what we need to do differently and what kind of social settlement we need to um, meet the challenges of the 21st century. So that's what I'm going to be talking about. This is about policy development. It's, not, it's, a, it's, it's what we do. It's not anthropology. So there you go. How do I change the screen? Um, this one? Yeah. Just like that. Yeah, yes. So what's our starting point? Well, our starting point is certainly global. Um, we, there, are, there are three problems we're trying to address. Widening inequalities in income, wealth, and power. Unsta an unstable economy with no real prospect of return to business as usual, i.e. what it used to be like before 2008. And accelerating climate change and destruction of the natural environment. Now, this is a toxic combination that is unique in human history. We've never been at this point before in human society, so we've really got to think differently about how we move forward. So I've got to give you a very sketchy overview of what we're trying to do here, and we've come up with three goals for a new social settlement. Firstly, social justice. 
Secondly, environmental sustainability. And thirdly, a more equal distribution of power. So those are the three main goals that we think we should be aiming towards, which would compare, for example, with the goals of the post-war settlement that were more like um, how to create full employment and uh, to support the market economy through a partnership, if you like, or a negotiation between uh, capital and labor. So we've got a different starting point and a different set of goals. And these lead us on to these priorities for policy and practice. Because we have a goal of um, environmental sustainability, we take the view that we have to plan for prosperity without relying on continuing economic growth. Now, there's a big argument behind this, which I haven't got time to go into, but we would say that there is um, some incompatibility between economic growth and being able to meet our carbon reduction targets and that uh, continuing economic growth will uh, destroy the environment and therefore we have to imagine how we create a prosperous society without, um, without growth. So that's, and if there were additional resources, say from higher taxes or not doing Trident or whatever, we might need to use them to build um, green infrastructure so that we can have a, an, um, an environmentally sustainable uh, future. So plan for prosperity without growth. And then, secondly, we need to shift investment and action upstream to prevent harm rather than waiting for harm to occur and then coping with the consequences. So um, prevention is at the center of our, of our vision and our objectives here. Um, the NHS has uh, been developed, has grown and grown and grown because it has never really paid any attention, any serious attention to how you keep people well, how you put doctors and nurses out of a job, for example. They've just grown and it's, so our needs for health care have got bigger and bigger, not just because of failure to prevent. but um, So we think there's an awful lot that can be achieved by shifting investment and action towards prevention. And that people don't want to be ill, they don't want to need public services, it's better for the quality of life. It makes a, a welfare state more sustainable economically, and um, it's so there are plenty of reasons why we would need to do that. And it implies a lot of things that I can't, haven't got time to go into. Thirdly, we think it's important to nurture what we call the core economy, and that's the uncommodified social and human resources that are embedded in everyday lives and relationships, so are our time, our love, our energy, our skills, the, the things that we do for each other, teaching and learning and caring for one another, this is the core economy. And if we can't grow the material economy, we can nurture this core economy and enable it to flourish and expand. But that requires um, action by the state through collective activity and funding, but it, we can do more to value it, to recognize it, to support it and enable it to grow. And finally, that we need to foster solidarity. We took the view that solidarity had become very um, unfashionable. People associated it with old-style trade unionism or um, Polish trade unions. It's just not a, a word that people really use very much. We feel we need to reclaim the idea of sharing and working together and supporting one another and having the organizations and the institutions that will enable us to do that. So those are the four priorities. Um, then we get on to 
gone awfully small. Proposals for... I don't know why that happened. Proposals for practical change. So uh, we, we've got four groups of proposals for practical change. We want to rebalance work and time, release human resources, strengthen social security, and plan for the future. And I'm going to go very quickly through each of these in turn and pick out one example to, to try and put a bit more flesh on these bones. So... Yeah, I'm sorry that's so small. Anyway, rebalancing work and time. And, and here I would pick out our proposal to move towards shorter and more flexible hours of paid work, to shorten the working week. And we feel that there are real benefits to be gained here, both for society and for the environment and for the economy. So if you shorten the working week, you can... Uh, especially if you're trying to uh, manage a sustainable economy that isn't growing but might be prosperous, you can uh, divide the paid work more evenly across the population so that people have, more people have jobs but they'll be working for shorter amounts of time. You can release time for people to care for one another. Um, you can release time for people to live more sustainably, to do all those things that we we don't do because we think we're too busy. So we, we do energy-intensive things like driving a car instead of walking or cycling because um, we, we think we're, we're too busy. So we feel we need to... That, 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 I mean, I, I can't go into the detail here, but that there's a, a lot to be gained from this, and it goes hand-in-hand hand with the proposal to um, try to achieve decent hourly rates of pay because, obviously, low-paid people can't afford just to take a cut in their hours and... Uh, um, a commensurate uh, drop in pay. So that's rebalancing balancing work and time. Next one is about uh, releasing human resources. And, um, and here, this is really at the heart of a lot of the work that we do, valuing and nurturing the core economy. What, what, we, what we found that we, um, we're working on a lot now with government institutions is to find out how to create the right kind of relationship between authorities, public bodies, whether they're in health or in local government or other parts of the public sector, and how they can work with the uncommodified resources in the core economy, how they can enable people to work with them without exploiting them or just dumping responsibilities on them. Um, we, we want to promote the principles of what we call co-production, which is about equal and reciprocal partnerships, and... Um, uh, much more besides. And, and then going on to strengthening social security. I have to open this little drawer every time I change the slides. And still on work and time. Okay, still with me. Uh, then strengthen social security. We're looking for more diverse, open, and collaborative public services. Um, different kinds of ownership, more co-ops, more mutuals, uh, not just uh, more services, but services where people are more in control than simply the professionals who are providing them. And, uh, and a more rounded and inclusive democratic benefit system. One of our proposals, for example, is to take job centres and introduce uh, co-production into the um, what they do in job centres. So instead of regarding people who are unemployed or come uh, seeking benefits or help to get a job as people who need help, they become people who are equal partners in trying to um, meet the challenges that, that they have. 
So all of this is about transforming relations between people and public institutions. We're trying to build a, a different kind of a state, if you like, a state that is able to be a, a broker, a facilitator, an enabler, not just um, to help people who have needs. So you have passive, needy recipients on the one hand and um, powerful professionals who provide on the other. And by tapping into those uncommodified resources, you can make it possible to um, have a bigger resource base to enable people to live well. And this is the last one, uh, plan for the future. And again, I can't go into all of these, but I, we feel that in a, a welfare state or a new social settlement that is going to meet the challenges of the 21st century, we need to have policies and mechanisms for future-proofing what is, what is done. So we need, there is, we have no means of checking whether any policy that is introduced by government or any practice that is overseen by or funded through government is going to be um, beneficial or harmful for future generations. And there are some countries you do have things like this, but we have none, so we feel that that will be a very important thing to try to introduce, as, along with other things. So planning for the future is the fourth of those. Now, um, I just wanted you to see that it does all fit together. This is the new social settlement with the <laughs> goals, with the uh, objectives, and with detailed proposals. And um, I feel that what we're we're moving towards here. This is now sort of like a, almost a, um, a framework within which we will develop future work at the New Economics Foundation, but it, it is the way that we feel that by tapping into what people do and feel and think at local level, working with them, valuing them, supporting them, them and local community-based organizations, shifting that balance of power between the state and people, we can build a different kind of a, of a welfare settlement for the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think we do recognize your vision, even from anthropology, and it's been called the human economy by at least one anthropologist I can think of, so definitely chimes with, with what we do. Okay, so over to um, Andrea Michelbach. Okay, thank you very much for having me here. And um, I won't be explicitly answering the five questions that Deborah posed at the beginning, but I'm actually going to try and think about them through the ethnographic work that I'll be doing in the next ten minutes. <clears throat> so I spent parts of last Sunday on the streets of Dublin, marching with some anti-austerity protesters from a group called Dublin Says No!, this was the 168th protest this group had held since 2013, every Sunday at 1, with traffic grinding to a halt and crawling along behind them for about an hour. I joined them because these protests are part of an ongoing struggle against the introduction of water charges by a semi-state firm, Irish Water, a struggle that has provoked one of the most sustained mass mobilizations that Ireland has seen in a very long time. At several points in the last year and a half, more than 100,000 people demonstrated against the introduction of water charges. The metering and pricing of water, activists argue, would lead to its commodification and anticipate future privatization. Activists said that they were already paying for water through general taxation and that they wanted to keep it that way rather than pay for water twice. 
The water charges were thus by far the most contentious austerity measure imposed on Irish citizens since Ireland's 2008 economic crash. After a 70 billion bank bailout in a country of 4.5 million people, a bailout paid for with taxpayers' money and resulting in a public sector salary cuts, the cutting of welfare and social spending, and the increase of regressive taxes and user fees, the water charges were the straw that broke the camel's back. A moment where the people in Ireland shouted, there is no more blood that you can squeeze from these stones. The political grief over water charges, and with grief I mean that thousands of Irish, including also, importantly, many women, have over the last year and a half engaged not just in extraordinary displays of mass mobilization, but also in mass civil disobedience, blocking the installation of water meters by sitting, standing, sometimes lying, sometimes for hours on their sidewalks in order to obstruct the workers who had come to install the meters in the ground. This political grief and anger has had effects. Two-thirds of the members of parliament who were elected into office last March stood on an anti-water charges platform. Over half of these politicians are not paying their water charges and insist instead on general progressive taxation. I want to shortly outline how austerity, an existential condition that has penetrated urban and rural fabrics across Europe, has created some grounds for the many who have labored to produce alternatives to this regime of plunder. The water struggle is one side out of which such alternatives are being made. Let me give an example from the Italian struggle against water privatization, where 27 million citizens voted against the privatization of water and for water as a commons in 2011 in a national referendum. This referendum has since been ignored, even though a prerogative referendum should, according to Italian law, be implemented once passed. Yet what I want to talk about here is not the de-democratization that has accompanied the regime of austerity, although this is an important aspect in our conversation about political possibility and practice, but about the indignation felt by millions of Italians and the kinds of practices that this indignation has given rise to. Take, for example, the politics of billing. With the privatization of water having continued unabated in Italy, Some water companies in the area around Naples that I've been researching as well have been sending families water bills that were 1,000, sometimes over 2,000 euros high. The argument was that these families had been charged retroactively because they had for years apparently been undercharged by the previous public company. I couldn't believe that such bills existed until I saw them with my own eyes. Bills photocopied, circulated, held up in meetings, or burned in public sometimes on the stake. Companies send out these bills in a context where almost 60% of young adults are unemployed, while their parents and grandparents, upon whom these young adults desperately rely, have had their pensions significantly cut. I've watched many people pore over these bills with lawyers as they've come to understand these pieces of paper as highly politicized artifacts containing highly political numbers. The number on the bill has become a potent signifier, not of the customer's obligation to pay, but of the citizen's dispossession through theft. It's become the material manifestation of the logic so characteristic of austerity that of downloading fees, risk, and blame onto those who can least afford it and of the state having internalized and socialized what is in fact an external financial crisis. By 2012, when it became clear that the Italian referendum was going to be ignored, water activists drew on an army of volunteers that the referendum had generated. Little booths were set up in public squares while volunteers helped people recalculate their water bills The goal was to refuse to pay those 7% return of investments to private investors that the referendum was supposedly to automatically have annulled. I've met people who until this day subtract this sum of money from their water bills 
the guaranteed 7% return of investment, and set them aside in bank accounts, saying that if the municipality wants to come and invest this money in infrastructure, they can have it, but I will not give this money to water thieves. In Berlin in 2011, a group of activists calling themselves the Berlin Water Table organized a similarly unprecedented referendum, forcing the heavily indebted city to fully remunicipalize its water company after it had sold off 49% of its waterworks in 1999. Berlin's water prices had subsequently soared to become the highest in the country. The referendum forced the city to reveal the contents of the private contract that had sealed the deal a revelation that rendered visible the open secret that high water prices were the direct result of an 8% return of investment that politicians had guaranteed to corporate investors, even if it ultimately meant drawing on taxpayers' money. This struggle against the number and its opacity and against the privacy of private contract became the vehicle that rendered visible the extractive mechanisms that municipal debt and subsequent sell-offs have set in motion. One might call these examples a kind of scale of politics insofar as they seek to reveal the vastness of the political and economic scales at play in these everyday extractive logics, as well as their complex and often hidden interconnection. I think the brilliance of Laura Beer's book lies in her capacity to traverse these manifold scales, showing how the financialization of sovereign debt connects to something like the shape-shifting of a river and the ripple of water. Water activists have, I think, achieved something similar, a practical politics that renders visible economic and political scales as well as their connections connections to, for example, bills, contracts, and as I will also quickly talk about water meters. Perhaps this feat is achieved because of the very nature of water. Though it falls from the sky, we take it from the ground, from rivers, wells, aquifers. To sell shares of water and have them traded in far-off places seems like a category mistake, a clear example of the violence of abstraction. Indeed, meters have become lightning rods of contention all over Europe. Seemingly technical objects have become intensely political. I've met groups of Italian guerrilla plumbers who dress up like the 1980s video game figure Super Mario and reinstall water meters that were removed as more and more people's water is shut off because of non-payment. I've met big burly Irishmen calling themselves water meter fairies who have in the last years uninstalled thousands of meters across the country. In Italy, the reinstallation of meters has come to signify the right to water that cannot be refused. In Ireland, the uninstalled meter is a symbol of plunder, but also an object to be laughed at, photographed in unlikely places, placed on Facebook pages, exhibited public in gardens as signs of refusal and rebellion. Indeed, what does it mean to refuse the bill altogether and to insist on paying through general progressive taxation, as is the case in Ireland? While continental water activists are bravely politicizing the bill, asking whose private rather than public debt is being paid off, whose pockets are being filled, and whether the money is invested in infrastructure or not, the Irish have presented us with a demand for a very different cosmology altogether, for a body politic that collectively gathers its monetary resources and redistributes them in rather than out, and according to, as Beer would put it, a social rather than a fiscal calculus. This is a demand for debate that aims to transform sovereign debt into sovereign duty via the question of the collective fisc, a debate over who pays what kinds of taxes, what happens with our taxes, and of the injustice of regressive versus progressive taxes, a demand that has grown out of the ongoing political alphabetization that the water movement has spawned. 
Political alphabetization is, of course, also an intensely affective and embodied affair as the broken social body attempts to reconstitute itself through these struggles. I just a few days ago listened to two women in a small Irish town as they talked with wonder about what happened to them and their neighbors as their public, at their public housing estate when Irish water arrived, accompanied by the police to install the hated water meters. Members of the community, including children, children stood arms locked, singing songs for hours as they blocked the road and trucks. To this day, as is the case in many working-class neighborhoods all over the country, water meters have not been installed. It was magic, one of the women said. During this research with Beer's book in mind and now being asked to think about alternatives to austerity, I've tried to outline the inklings of one post-austerity project that is already in our midst. And I think that we as anthropologists are well positioned to grasp and render visible these popular ethical projects, not least because there exist family resemblances between our own search for the large in the very small and for the abstract in the very concrete and our interlocutors' own attempt to grasp these same scales through their own practical politics, economics, and ethics. However, I'd like to end now with a few additional questions and concerns. How do we make politics in an age of austerity that, as Mark Blith recently put it in his book on austerity, an age that breeds a political climate of hysteria, demagoguery, and delusion? And by this, I do not only meet the steady rise of the right in Europe, but parts of the current political classes as well. How do we participate in democratic processes if we, as Wendy Brown has really put it, live in an era where the demos, indeed democracy itself, is becoming undone? How do we operate within the contradiction opening up between increased demands for justice from below and the rapid decrease, especially of legal avenues, to pursue these demands? I'm thinking of TTIP and CETA. And to take a cue from Laura's book, how do we deal with the fact that the era of debt financialization has oriented many, if not all, social rhythms towards the central time of debt repayment? How do we push against debt repayment's intensely accelerated pace? Anthropology as a slow science takes time. The building of political and social and the solidaristic body takes time. And it seems to me that we have very little time. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, over to Kylie. Great. Well, finally, I'll take us to uh, Paraguay, which is a place that has never had a robust welfare state and, in fact, has trialed um, long-term experiments with economic liberalization. So uh, this will be a kind of final counterpoint to uh, the forms of uh, the claims that we can make on welfare politics. And it's been a real joy to think with Laura Bearer's new book, Navigating Austerity, since it offers um, a provocation to think about some of these new policies. If austerity is a set of fiscal policies that we might think we fully understand, the book reveals histories and complexities uh, upon careful investigation that only ethnography can truly reveal. So the book um, also sets out a challenge to scholars and activists invested in creating a social calculus to evaluate and critically analyze inequality under contemporary capitalism. At stake is a wider debate about different kinds of long-term productive forces, and uh, most of these are invisible to the budgets and um, economic measures that we're more familiar with. So these domains of generative productivity are expansively and creatively analyzed in Navigating Austerity, the book that we're here to talk about. 
from making and converting sovereign state debt to constructing a homebrew hovercraft to coping with accidents by inventing electronic charts. And I encourage you to ask Laura about these various projects. Um, Bear's work sets productivity in motion, tied to the currents of the river, the movement of fiscal policies, and the uncertain horizons of the human life course. At no point can these cross-currents be reduced to an economic calculus of productivity. As she writes in her conclusion, uh, the prospect... Uh, offers a new line, the project offers a new line of sight on public financing, or as she puts it, economic activity here is placed inside a totalizing social calculus and judged by it. So I use this insight that productivity is deeply social to reflect on my own research and the specific meaning of the social when put in service of a particular economic arrangement, in the case that I study, microcredit programs in Latin America. So if new uh, configurations of community and mutuality offer alternatives to austerity, and we've heard some very creative um, ideas of how that might unfold, what do we make of economic policies that already bank on particular forms of mutuality as the basis of a financial tool? No? There we go. So, in the past two decades, microfinance has gone from a visionary call to fundamentally rethink financial systems along more inclusive and democratic lines to a mainstay, uh, mainstay of the commercial banking sector. So many of you are surely well-versed in the specifics of microfinance, so I won't belabor that here. Uh, but as a kind of primer to uh, microfinance and its um, imaginaries, these are small loans that are used to support small businesses and most famously for women. And uh, while the specific terms of lending vary from program to program, my research in Paraguay focused on a nonprofit development program that offered group-based loans to what they called committees of women entrepreneurs. And one of the real insights of microfinance uh, proceeds from the kind of insight you see here kind of cheekily in the cartoon, um, where you can't simply walk into a bank and say, I don't know, I was just in a borrowing mood. <laughs> Um, if only, right? So uh, very quickly, the conversation would surely turn towards the physical collateral that you might put in service of your borrowing. Uh, these could be wage, um, wages, um, property, other assets that could be seized by the bank in the event of default. So microfinance uh, famously did away with those requirements for physical collateral and instead uh, generated new forms of social collateral, and these are forms of collectivity and cohesion um, that are put in the service of debt um, service. So these mutually guaranteed loans uh, dispensed with physical collateral and innovated social collateral. And these are forms of collectivity and cohesion that have sustained families and neighborhoods um, before the microfinance boom, but have now been reconceived as a potential source um, of creditworthiness and the basis for financial inclusion. So these social resources are uh, crucial but invisible for the entrepreneurs and state actors that feature in Bear's account of the Huli River. Uh, in our wider consideration of alternatives to austerity, uh, we can talk and think about the conducts of life, these wider social resources, um, and think of them as unsettled conceptual terrain. Why? 
The so-called fiscal discipline uh, poses a deceptively straightforward question. How do we budget for the projects and ways of life that we hope to see succeed, which puts the conduct of life front and center in these fiscal policies? So Bear answers this question in her book, and I'm going to do this in very schematic terms, uh, that however budgets conjugate public financing and various collective projects, the timeframes can never be short-term. And so the timescapes involved in uh, thinking of these forms of life um, should be over longer time horizons. So the, these conducts of life um, stretch forward into the future. So these involve wide-ranging uh, ethical responses to how do we think of uh, conducts of life, responses that Bear beautifully analyzes using the polysemic notion of navigating, coupling movement and capital, labor and profit generation. So navigation mediates these various conducts of life on the river. So how might alternatives to austerity involve taking seriously collective projects and conducts of life? And uh, the financial crisis of 2008 appears to have created new openings and potentials for new uh, solidarities and new forms of mutuality. So my research on microfinance would suggest that uh, the answer to this question of taking seriously um, collective projects and conducts of life is certainly yes and yes, but with an important caveat that I'll develop here. One especially pervasive way of coupling financial tools, metrics, and values with wider forms of social obligation has been trialed extensively in microfinance programs around the world, especially in Paraguay. So solidarity, too, has been seen at the root of microfinance social collateral. So though it might seem very unfashionable in um, labor organizing these days, it's definitely a buzzy term in the financial inclusion literature. So from the perspective of bankers, these deeply social loans predicated on trust and obligation are also extremely financially successful on their own terms, with repayment rates that often exceed conventional, uh, the conventional banking sector. So in these terms, solidarity loans equate mutuality with more coercive and contractual forms of joint liability, reducing those um, forms of obligation to contractual mutual indebtedness. So like sovereign debt contracts, the collective debts of microcredit groups turn political and ethical relationships among members, families, and communities into financial relationships. So crucially, it's not just that microcredit touched down in the densely social worlds of local neighborhoods and hoovered up these collective resources as a source of profit. One of the most striking findings of my research was that I, turns out I had a very limited understanding of mutuality and solidarity going into the project. And one reason for this, as with navigating economic worlds on the Huli, was that women's social interdependencies were constantly in motion. So the snapshots that we get at the kind of end of a loan repayment or the kind of final outcomes of a microcredit borrower's uh, economic possibilities only show a little bit of the picture of these moving solidarities. When women set out to borrow, they had to create a group of 15 to 25 borrowers who are collectively liable for the debt and collectively liable for paying it back. So solidarity kind of ebbed and flowed over the course of the loan, thickly social while establishing creditworthiness as a group, 
through these kind of very dramatic face-to-face meetings that uh, often took hours to the creation of a collective credit score for the whole group. They were later individualized when negotiating particular payment problems of one member who uh, had reneged on her payment, or when some women leveraged the group payments to uh, their own individual gain, often through fraud or theft. In fact, there was nothing automatic or natural about solidarity, and by extension, nothing natural about the link between women and microfinance, no matter how pervasive it seems to be. Social collateral, in other words, took a great deal of social work. And it was this constant work of managing economic interdependency that ended up generating social collateral, not the inherent or natural attributes of women. And this was a puzzle and a burden that was put to women daily by microfinance, how to mediate these interdependencies. So at the core of microcredit is a set of dilemmas over how and under what conditions we wish to be bound by one another or by a community, by shared debts. So I'll end with some final reflections on how to make these interdependencies explicit in an austere world. So I think that social collateral is, in fact, everywhere once we know to look for it. In fact, Melinda Cooper has noted that in the wider financial system, Through the act of fiat debt creation, the U.S. is effectively inspiring the practical, if not the willing, confidence of the world's investors. So, in effect, something that looks a great deal like social collateral, the interdependency of joint obligation and mutual guarantee, is becoming the basis for the distributional order of global finance. And I find it curious that we're at a moment when two big-to-fail notions of overly dense financial entanglements among the biggest banks in the global financial system, in fact, so interpenetrated that if one goes down, we fear that they all tumble together, Um, that that shares remarkable similarities with the too small-to-fail notions of microfinance, where if one borrower fails, then the group sinks together and must rely on their interdependencies and intimacies to generate social collateral. So this is an important context in which to consider new forms of collectivity and cohesion bound up in our shared debts, as well as their potential futures. So if microfinance is eminently worthy of critique, which I think it is, and may well contribute to exploitation, as it does in many contexts, it also provokes a discussion of the work of creating social collateral and of managing economic interdependency. And this is so for the women who borrow as well as their bankers. There's a critical vocabulary embedded in the tool itself for discussing how and under what conditions we're indebted to one another and how those debts might come due. And I would put it to uh, us in our conversation whether we can say the same about our conventional debts. So one utopian horizon for alternatives to austerity would be to recognize and really reckon with the absolutely pervasive ways that interdependency already shapes our financial worlds. It's just a hidden feature of our global financial system. Like borrowers recruited into microcredit, we might think of this as an opportunity and a resource to critically evaluate social collateral in our wider financial system and its possible futures. Thanks. Thanks very much. Okay, so we're going to sit down and have a conversation. Um, I've already noticed some fascinating interconnections between the themes that people have been talking about.
I've been noticing, for example, ideas of solidarity as being held up as the ideal towards which we might be striving, but also something that might be sort of used in an almost exploitative manner uh, via the kinds of interconnections you were talking about. I also notice a lot of um, connections between future orientation. There's, there's quite a lot of talk about the future in various talks we've heard here. I also was interested in the question of um, how we might be, find it easier to refuse to pay for certain things that we've never been used to paying for, like water, for example, than maybe to refuse to pay our debts because everyone's so used to paying those and there's some sort of morality that's being kind of infiltrated into our skulls that, that, that you definitely have to pay for that, but the idea of water seems so much more counterintuitive. And, and I also sort of wondered um, whether some of the financialized and fragmentary technologies that the anthropologists have been talking about here might be the things that prevent some of the more humanizing solidarities that, that Anna was talking about. Um, so in a, in a sense, that was a great vision, but you wonder how people are going to get there through all of these commodified arrangements that just seem to be getting piled on you know, day after day. Anyway, those are just a couple points that I noticed. But um, should we ask people if they've got some questions and then we can have a conversation? So, any, any questions? Um, yeah? Sorry, there's a microphone there. Well, thank you. I mean, utopia is a wonderful idea, no doubt. But we have been searching for utopia for a long time. Uh, we haven't got there yet. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, the the shortages create inequalities, or at least they generate inequalities. It's only when we have prosperity that we have uh, a degree of equality. Now, how, do you, how, do, how are you going to generate prosperity by, by your systems? I mean, cap, the, uh, what you call the capitalist system has generated a degree of, of prosperity uh, in, in, the, in the world, and it has given us a degree of equality as well. Now, all right, so I'm asking you, how are you going to generate a degree of prosperity in the world through your systems? Thank you. Great. Um, any other points? So, so maybe what we could do is, uh, while other people are gathering their thoughts, you guys could sort of even ask each other questions as well, because I'm sure many thoughts have come up. Yes, I, I realize that focusing on um, austerity gives us a very kind of dystopian um, framing for, for the issues. And this question of how to generate prosperity is, of course, you know, centrally there in all, of our, in all of our projects, even though we haven't explicitly focused on that. Um, and I think that part of the problem in India, if I look at the sort of concrete situation of India, is that there's been a kind of promise held out of prosperity since the 1990s that was founded on a notion uh, that the state, when it held capital, was starving the rest of, capital, rest of society of access to capital and credit. And so all of the financial reforms that have taken place in India since the 1990s have been about moving control of credit and capital away from the state and into the hands of the population, 
via the system of bank infrastructures. So that was about one particular dream of how you create prosperity by freeing up the productivity of capital, by putting it into all of our hands. And it's a dream of prosperity that has spectacularly failed, you know, both in the microcosm of the Hooghly River and more generally in terms of you know, raising the um, fundamentally poor groups of people in society above that basic poverty level. So I think that we need to start thinking of new ways of creating prosperity, and I think my talk was about how to do that. It was about suggesting very specific sorts of new financing mechanisms that would create uh, greater prosperity within society by uh, governments actually taking control of financial policy and monetary policy, again, away from these marketizing institutions. And I think that if we shifted that, if we moved away from these financialized versions of the public sector and moved towards a, a kind of politics and a series of infrastructures that would support that politics that were about creating a greater amount of prosperity for all, then we would be doing much, much better. Anna. I think uh, you say how can we um, achieve greater prosperity and I, I just think we have to work out what we mean by prosperity and we don't, I mean there are many, many different ways of understanding it so it could be about meeting people's needs or ensuring that everybody um, enjoys feelings of well-being which is a complex but measurable concept. Uh, it's, uh, it may be understood as how much we consume or what we consume, or who can consume what. And um, certainly looking at it from a perspective of the, of the rich world, which is where my, um, most of my work is, is focused, it matters a great deal what we consume. It um, matters because we have to think about prosperity not just now, but prosperity, how our efforts to achieve prosperity now um, impact on the capacity of future generations to enjoy a degree of prosperity, however defined. But first of all, let's decide what we think prosperity means. Any, any other comments from either of you? Um, <clears throat> I can only um, add to what's already been said. Of course, I completely agree with uh, what both of you already said. Um, adding to the question of what prosperity and wealth means and will mean in the future um, uh, we can add questions that Anna already asked, which is what is productivity and what is growth um, and how do we measure it and uh, what will happen with all of these concepts that are so foundational to our capitalist economy but that mean very, very particular things um, if we think about moving towards um, economies uh, that are not organized around growth. Um, in fact, I'd love to hear Anna talk a little bit more because Anna also gets to speak to people that we usually don't speak to, um, you know, politicians, economists, and so on. Um, um, I mean, I imagine that everyone realizes um, that there are limits to growth and that growth has to be fundamentally redefined, or maybe I'm living in some anthropological fairyland and only we believe this, but um, I'd love to know, you know, what your interlocutors, after we've finished this round of conversation, of course, um, uh, think or say when you say um, we need to move towards an economy that is organized, uh, uh, that is not organized around growth, because of course that's a fundamental, that raises a fundamental question of is this even a capitalist economy then? Uh, you know, what, what, do you, what do your people say to this? I'd be very interested uh, in this question, but um, go on. 
Yeah, I suppose that I would echo, echo the rest of the panel and also note that uh, what I sort of didn't fully develop in uh, my talk was the kind of deep history that Paraguay has had of trialing free market um, and liberalized forms of economic development that are kind of attempting to generate prosperity um, through what we would recognize as um, kind of liberalized economic policy. And that's had like, deeply unusual unequal and uneven um, effects. It's, um, Paraguay is one of the most unequal countries in Latin America. Um, so the forms of accumulation that are made possible by certain types of productivity and certain kind of aims of um, imaginaries of economic uplift certainly um, are serving the interests of some, but most of the women taking off on microcredit debt um, wouldn't see themselves as part of that um, kind of project of economic prosperity and success. Um, in fact, most of their um, their own sort of life goals and livelihood um, possibilities were sustained by um, taking on ever more debt, and that's um, something that others can speak to um, as well. So, kind of really thinking about the particularities of how prosperity um, has been talked and thought about is leading us back, or it seems to lead us back in many ways to the ethnographic or to the you know, particular idioms that different um, communities use to understand and discuss and debate and um, challenge what some of these metrics might mean in their daily lives. And uh, it's a kind of generative conversation in and of itself. Yeah, one point that I noticed um, and, and noted down here was that, um, in a sense, some of the anthropologists here have been talking much more about how social life has been commodified right down to the mutual groups that you're describing, right down to the water that Andrea is describing, and indeed all these kinds of elements that, that Laura is describing as well, that the sort of need to repay those debts becomes the absolute sort of foremost aspect of, of life, whereas in, in Anna's vision of, of this future that we could be um, subscribing towards, you're talking a lot about decommodification, you're talking about the need to kind of put at the forefront social values. And I think that's also what Laura's talking about when she, she speaks of a social calculus. But also I've read some of your other work, Andrea, for example, your book in, about Italy, which is partly about how ethical projects actually seem to arise right at the heart of what, what might be an austerity regime. So it's not like you, you simply have to get rid of all commodification in order to reach those ethical projects. Sometimes they actually seem to flourish right in the hearts of these things. And so... There's something interesting there, I think, as well. Uh, but the question I, I guess I would ask is, how do we get to that decommodified state if indeed we are you know, aiming at that? Which I guess is a question directed partly at Anna. <laughs> uh, any other questions in the meantime that people might want to ask? I was wondering, um, I, I, I hope it's fair to say that most of your presentations were fairly kind of um, either present or future-oriented. Um, and I was wondering if you had any um, thoughts on whether the kind of collective experiences of austerity around the world have changed as expectations of human rights and what they might bring for um, both in terms of kind of capitalism but also in terms of expectation of um, public services and what we feel kind of entitled to um, and how those might interact with changing experiences of austerity. Great. There's a question there. Sorry, it's down there. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, I guess to Anna as well, sorry, we're just bombing you. Um, but I, I guess building a little bit what Carly was saying, 
seems to me that a lot of what you were proposing um, goes around this idea of solidarity or a more you know socially based um, econo economics an idea of work or less work or more share work less work all kind of idea and an idea of the green infrastructure and it seems to me that when we look at it through the lens of what Carly was saying well, there's a lot of solidarity going on. I mean, you could make the argument that the bailout is an act of solidarity. It's an act of solidarity between certain kind of governance and certain kind of financer who went to the same schools and grew up together, and they're very solidar to each other. <laughs> you could make the argument that the whole financial institution is based on solidarity between people who went to the same schools because they all came from five schools around the world. So you, you could make the argument that solidarity is actually very central to what we're seeing. Um, one. Secondly, the idea of um, the idea of work or sharing work, um, in a way, it seems to me to run the risk of falling into a certain productive aesthetics that got us into this place. So I wonder what you thought something about actually undoing work and think about a minimum guaranteed income or universal guaranteed income and actually try to undo the idea that we need to produce in general or that we have a, a duty to work. So I guess these two things on solidarity and maybe thinking about ways in which we might need to actually go completely beyond both ideas and, and think outside of the spectrum, I guess. Sorry for the long one. Great. Okay, we have one more question over here and then we'll get, take a round of answers. Thank you. There's a person just here in the middle, a lady with a shawl. There we go. So I wanted to go back to a slightly further past than we've inhabited, right? So, and um, to go back to South Asia, but also to go back to thinking about collective discussions happening in the 40s and 50s among non-aligned nations, which included Ireland. Um, and really to go back to... And so just thinking, you know, because I've been... When I've been following, I actually tracking the history of the shift in uh, banking policies um, in different genres, right? So it's, when we think sovereign debt, it's explicitly debt on a world market, but there have been other ways of generating bonds, right? Ireland, for example, actually had a bond market in place before Ireland was formed. So I was thinking about war bonds, right? So is there, and that, that there's a, so part of the whole production of that idea of the external and internal bond, Ireland's bonds were external but uh, non-resident Irish. Indian war bonds were internal. And they explicitly were organized around a kind of solidarity, which is problematic and and sort of tried to do something at a particular time, which is around savings, which was also considered a form of austerity, right? So one of the things about thinking austerity is we, austerity assumes it's quote-unquote, whatever that particular, I mean, the different particularities, neoliberal form, but there was an earlier form of austerity during times of formation, reformation, formation of the nation, the notion of hardship, so was, and, and they were specifically, that form was about reconstituting kinds of solidarity. And they, were, they included, I mean, South Asia was explicitly, all these bonds were targeted towards the small saver, the tiny saver, 
the person with a three-acre field, for example, the farmer, and that farmer built the nation on the backs of savings and on a bond. So is there a way we can bring that back into the conversation, I think? Great. Let's take a round of answers. I think there's something for everyone to, to address here. So, Laura? Yes, thank you for the, for the deeper historical perspective on this. Um, so I think the important transition here is actually that period in the 80s and 90s with the kind of marketization of sovereign debt bonds because the kinds of austerity that you're talking about could be about national solidarity because the bonds were totally in the control of the government to issue. So I think this is very interesting because we, we, we forget history very, very fast. We forget that there could be any alternative to the structures of the present. So I think it's really important to return to these older models, even though we wouldn't want to repeat those older models. We should also remember things like the post-war uh, BISC clauses that were applied to you know, loans to Europe, loans to the UK, um, these BIS clauses, you, you didn't have to repay the debt, the government didn't have to repay the debt um, if the standard of living fell below a certain level. You know, we have all sorts of models there already in history for thinking of new ways to structure, you know, these financial, uh, financial debts. Um, I think the challenge is, the challenge is what's shown by, in particular by Carly's work, the challenge is that now these forms of financialized personal and state debt are folded inside all of our financial relationships. So what we're asking for here is a fundamental, you know, you couldn't, it's technical, but it is a fundamental revolution in the way money is supplied is, uh, to the economy. Um, and, you know, it is absolutely at the heart of all of our relationships, student debt loans, everything, you know, the loans that are we're buying new buildings for LSE with down the road. You know, it's all, it's all folded in. And these sovereign debt bonds, as I mentioned in my talk, are also folded into the expansion of the shadow banking sector, which now our current economy is mainly fueled by. The shadow banking is any banking that goes on outside the explicit markets. But all of those transactions are underpinned by sovereign debt bonds because they're seen as the most secure architecture on which to base all of it. So we're really talking about, you know, it's technical, but... This, is, this would be a revolution. Anna. Right. An awful lot of questions seem to be hurled my way, and I, I'm not going to answer all of them. But um, on, the, on the question of, uh, of, of debt and money, I think some of my colleagues at NEF have written about uh, uh, what, what money is. Uh, we need to remember, it's a bit like redefining prosperity, we need to remember that money is not a thing, it's a relationship and that it can be created. And um, if we had, we've been, we've been lulled into this idea that we can't control what money is or how much we have or it is out there and it's under other people's control. And the movement to create comp complementary currencies is quite an interesting one, that uh, you have uh, currencies that operate locally on the whole that uh, people can use to um, exchange for things locally and it gives a, a different perspective on, on money. Um, so that's, that, that's one thing. The second thing is, I, I mean, I'm really interested in this stuff about solidarity and how, of course, we actually wrote a paper about how, as a background paper to this work on a new social settlement about solidarity and how, of course, it can be utterly exploitative. And, you know, you can have cartels and nepotism and people looking after their own and sort of kinship uh, networks that are exclusive and, and so on and so on. And, in fact... 
we, we were forced to the conclusion that the only vehicle that we have at the moment to try to mediate and safeguard um, equal relationships is the state. Because the state is the vehicle we have if we can use it right and if we understand it and insist that it is what we need it to be is the vehicle for ensuring that uh, groups don't exploit each other and that it can can create and oversee, if you like, or safeguard a, a kind of solidarity where people, which can move us all towards greater equality rather than just simply allowing people to be to, to have solidarity within smaller groups. I think it's really important to... Um, when I talk about solidarity, I really want to uh, be referring to the way in which we raise taxes from people who can afford it and spend it through collectively provided services to meet people's needs. It's about shared risk and, um, and, and equality and greater equality. But I realize that it can mean many different things in very complex ways, which just goes to show how if policy people don't listen to the anthropologists, they're never going to get it right. <laughs> and vice versa, probably. Someone there raised an interesting question about rights, and actually I'm just trying to... We had... Um, I mean, I can't go on for, the, for too long, but um, we, I'm, I'm trying to work on something now about uh, what I would call a citizen's entitlement, and it's in part a response to the, this uh, debate about basic income because basic income is all about giving individuals money, and I think we need to reclaim the importance of, um, what, of, of the collective provision that we, we ought to have rights to. Actually, nobody in this country really has an enforceable right, even to health care. There's nothing in our constitution that gives us rights. We have this bit of legislation and that bit of legislation, but we don't have in type, we don't have social rights that are enforceable. So now, question mark, and I don't know the answer to this question, is it worth going for that? I don't know. I'd be interested in what other people think. It's probably not for this discussion. But we've had, we had that thing, if you remember, in the, well, many of you won't, in the early 90s, the, the Citizens' Charter where the government tried to define some things that people were supposed to be entitled to. It was basically about trying to reframe people as customers rather than <laughs> citizens. Um, and uh, there's a little thing bubbling up in the trade union movement now, trying to talk about a welfare charter. But I think we need to think more about how, what, what, we, what citizens should be entitled to. So... That's that really. I think I'd better stop there. Thank Can you I just much. jump in very briefly? Um, I think it would be very interesting to bring together the movement around social rights that's developing within unions or at, mm. at the NEF with the discussions that are going on um, with, with Debt Resistance UK that is carrying out citizens' audits on the financialization of local authority debt. And you could actually bring the two together and create a kind of grassroots movement around citizens' sense of outrage about the ways that the public sector have been financialized and their sense of what their citizenship rights should be in relation to local authority provisioning in particular. So I think that might be a very interesting 
Yeah, I just don't want to. Uh, I don't want to oversell this because uh, you know this is just like a little thing that's going on. I saw a leaflet the other day that said welfare chart. I looked on the back of the leaflet and had a, a lot of logos from different trade unions. I thought, aha, here's something going on that could be interesting. And I'm the only person in my organisation who's thinking about writing about a citizen's entitlement, and I haven't written about it yet. I'm just talking about it. <laughs> I'm too nervous, really, to you know to get down to the computer because I realise it's opening a huge can of worms. So anyone who thinks that they can help me, uh, fine, I'll, you know, talk to me later. But yes, yes you're right. There's a lot, that, lot of uh, links that can be um, made there with uh, the outrage that people feel. Yes. Great. Andrea? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm glad that you um, brought up the, the um, issue of the state. Um, and all of this is sparked off by the question of um, sovereign debt. And of course, that this is not a new thing. But as Laura describes very well in a book, um, the fundamental shift is in, has occurred in the financialization of debt. Um, and so debt itself has shape shifted, and its value has shape shifted, and the extractive mechanisms around it have shape shifted. Um, but what's also shape shifted fundamentally, of course, is the sovereign, the sovereign part in the sovereign debt part. Uh, and that's the other very worrying uh, thing, I think, um, insofar as we think about austerity, again, a lot of people are saying austerity, of course, has a very long pedigree, a very long history. Uh, and yet, if we think about sort of the austerity happening under Margaret Thatcher, um, the kind of state, the kind of sovereign that existed in those days, of course, was a profoundly different one. And so the austerity that's being rolled out now is really um, a kind of austerity um, that's occurring within an already neoliberalized um, state landscape, public landscape. Uh, and so really austerity today is lo- uh, basically rolling back those state structures that have been built around a creating um, uh, a deregulated system. Um, and so it's that apparatus that's being paid, uh, paired back. And um, I was just reading... Yeah, um, you know, the, the, about the state of the state in, in the U.S., um, where really, I mean, austerity, although not nominally called austerity, of course, is also raging. Um, and there, um, large parts of public servants that are still paid, I think 70% of public servants in America today are firefighters and, um, what did I write, write down? Uh, and police, of course. Um, 70% of the state today in the U.S. consists of these two, um, uh, um, and it's very interesting uh, if you think about uh, white male working class uh, men who've otherwise been dis- disenfranchised, where are they migrating to? Um, but So th- think about the shape-shifting of the state, the way in which law itself uh, has, in the U.S., for example, severely inhibited the taxation capacity of municipalities. It's illegal for municipalities to raise taxes. They have to be debt financed. Um, And so um, uh, to think about the sovereign and that shape-shifting is very, very important. And I think it's also important to think, to realize that this is also happening, not just in big, bad America, but at the heart of Europe itself. And I just want to give a last example because it was actually quite telling and also shocking. Um, I was just recently at the with a group of activists and politicians, leftist politicians at the Bundestag, um, who were debating how to stop the privatization of the German Autobahn. Um, And um, what... um, is happening there is that in order to do so, you have to change the constitution, um, which raises a whole other question about what, you know, um, uh, the role of of activism around constitutions, and there's a lot of constitutional lawyers I've also been talking to because um, uh, there's a lot of people talking about constitutions right now and returning to the kinds of rights that were enshrined or are enshrined in constitutions and that are being changed. Uh, It turns out that the German government um, wanting to privatize 
the Autobahn needs to change the constitution in order to do so. All of the local Bundesländer are against the privatization of the Autobahn. Uh, and in order to um, force the Bundesländer to agree, um, and this is something that cam came out in this private meeting, this sort of secret meeting between these activists and these politicians, is that the government is, is saying to the Bundesländer right now, we will, give you, we will only give you money to deal with refugees if you agree in an accelerated process to change the constitution so that we can pri privatize the Autobahn. These are the kinds of politics that a technocratic state um, that's focused entirely on the balancing of budgets and on debt financing, right, um, that... It's happening, again, at the heart of Europe in Berlin right now. So when we think, we think about the shifting of debt, we need to think about the shifting of, of the sovereign and the tra fundamental transmutation of the sovereign as well. Thank you. Kylie. Great. Uh, the question about the sort of collective experience and change over time has um, kind of already been well covered, but I'll kind of add a bit more um, from the microfinance perspective, and especially thinking with um, your provocation about how do we kind of definancialize um, some of these kind of forms of collectivity and cohesion that we uh, might like to see um, succeed. And um, I guess that the, my research on microfinance um, would kind of, kind of challenge um, whether or not that's even kind of really possible um, at this moment, and that might be something we can discuss further. Especially as um, many of these austerity policies have been rolling out, we've seen a um, parallel move to expand financial inclusion policies um, at the same time, where the kind of realm of talking about democratization, inclusion, equality has been in the idiom of finance and financial inclusion. Uh, in Paraguay, that takes a very specific um, form, and there's a kind of way that um, many Paraguayans talk about their kind of inclusion in these wider financial landscapes, and they call it um, bicycling credit, where they're paying off one loan uh, with the next, and it keeps kind of turning the, the, the credit bicycle pedals around by like, borrowing more um, and more. And the kind of fear is that um, if you're kind of cut off from those sources of finance, um, then really you like, fall off, um, not just the credit bicycle, but any sort of possibilities of participating in um, the democratic polis. And all of the kind of aspirations towards equality and participation are couched in that idiom. And this isn't just for the microfinance borrowers that I studied, um, kind of all the way up to the vice president of uh, Paraguay's credit scoring agency, um, kind of talks about the credit bicycle in these terms and had to duck out of our interview um, to make a payment to a bill collector for the flat screen TV that he'd bought to watch the 2010 World Cup while I was uh, doing these kind of interviews. So if everybody is sort of bicycling credit, um, I was faced with the real question of whether the cat can go back in the bag um, or whether or not there might be, um, as Andrea has noted in some of her work, um, ethics inside of liberal political and economic forms that could help us rethink um, what those forms of collectivity <laughs> and cohesion might look like. Can I just quickly say something? Because I, I was, this wasn't a very hopeful book. Um, I think this was really an attempt to think about 
sort of the cannibalism or capture mm. of solidarity mm. yeah. um, like by markets. Finance, exactly. Right? And, and I, it is true that I have a few sentences where I say, I don't know where this is going. And I think we still don't know where this is going. Mm. Um, but I think it's really, yeah, I, 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 I just want to... I didn't mean to make, paint you okay. with Pollyanna. <laughs> no. Yes. no, we're not, we're not accusing Sorry. you of being Pollyanna, don't worry. <laughs> no, but again, similarly in the microfinance yeah. um, kind of yeah. world where solidarity has these, um, it has been kind of absolutely kind of captured by yeah. um, sort of logics of accumulation. But still, um, yes. when on the credit bicycle, um, social collateral um, was a puzzle that was put yes. to women daily of how yeah. do you kind of grapple with these dilemmas. And it was rarely an enabling puzzle, but mm-hmm. it was a puzzle that was explicit. Um, yes. And it was framed in explicit terms and a challenge, um, and often a pitched battle over mm-hmm. kind of how um, to manage these overlapping obligations when everybody kind of knows that um, the credit bicycle is high stakes. Um, for all involved. So um, certainly not to kind of point that to that as enabling, but to kind of consider how that kind of language of interdependency that now has been kind of deeply financialized might also kind of offer a critical vocabulary to talk and think about what those pitch battles mean, right, Um, and who they are put in service for. Mm -hmm. So rather than kind of like thinking about necessarily, the the women that I work with aren't thinking about how to definancialize their relationships. They're thinking about how to kind of re- frame the idioms of um, interdependency on their own terms um, Mm -hmm. and in service of other projects. Mm -hmm. And those projects were often quite surprising, um, not about necessarily the forms of prosperity that I would have anticipated, but put in service of other um, sorts of projects. So uh, in parallel with talking about how to decommodify and how to reframe financial logics, um, I wonder if we might take the lead from some of the women on the credit bicycle um, to think also about what existing vocabulary we have that is being put in in service of projects we might not want to see succeed and to think about how they might be redirected, retooled, and uh, reframed in service of other sorts of um, projects. I didn't mean to mischaracterize mm-hmm. your It's everything okay, good. Your it's good. Um, good. But like microfinance, <laughs> it's a very sort of like wah-wah story, right? <laughs> Where you're like, oh, man. <laughs> There's no sort of winners here, and it's not a kind of a story of economic uplift and self-betterment. Mm-hmm. But even in, I think that those critical projects themselves are coming from really unexpected places. And I think Laura Beer has said in your Jens Manifesto, you know, um, we can't talk about the total capture of, of the commons or of solidarity of social relations. Like, that's always just an aspirational project, mm-hmm. of course. Um, and, and we as anthropologists right? can show this. Um, it's incomplete, it's, it's incoherent, it's an attempt, an aspiration. So that's yes. yeah. and I, I'm not sure decommodification yeah. is a realistic goal. I would, I'm much more interested in uh, uh, sort of creating barriers to the forms of extreme accumulation that are going on at the top of our society. You know, um, 8% of the wealth in the UK is, is controlled by 1 million households. You know, this is the kind of thing that is highly problematic, the kind of hollowing out of state taxation mechanisms, you know, all sorts of public sector infrastructures that has led to this massive increase in, in inequality. And, you know, and, and, and the accumulation from these public infrastructures is at the heart of yes. the wealth of, of these families. So I don't think, I don't think decommodification, I think, you know, feminism, it was very interesting to hear you speaking earlier, Anna, about your first activism around feminism, and that's absolutely stamped on the NEF project as well with your discussion of the core economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think we're really talking about a utopia of decommodification yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. So um, 
and just to use the term that you use, we're not trying to put the cat back in the bag, but we're definitely using some fascinating kind of interchanges from these different perspectives that we've been hearing about tonight. So if you have further conversations, we'll be having them upstairs on the sixth floor where you're invited to come and have a drink. You're also invited to go and buy one of Laura's books outside, and you're invited to have carrying on having conversations with everybody here. So thank you very much to all of our speakers.